You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to Kilowatt. My name is Bodie and I am your host <laughs> and it's a little late for this podcast. It is Sunday, August 22nd. So, uh, interesting fact, I actually started researching and going through the videos of AI Day. I guess researching is a very loose term, but going through the videos of AI Day and trying to figure out how I can incorporate the information from AI Day into this show. And I'm going to be 100% honest with you. I am a certified dummy. And the information presented was specifically to recruit people who have who are already working in AI or want to work in AI. So it was really nerdy. It was great. Don't get me wrong. It was great. But it was really nerdy. And a lot of it, I I understood portions of it. I was able to, with the videos that they showed and the images and the slides that they showed, I was able to kind of piece together the rest of it. But I don't know how to take that information and then turn it around and give it to you so it makes sense. Because if you're, if you're not one of these folks, and I know there are people in the audience who are, who are programmers and work with machine learning and work with artificial intelligence. Cause I've talked to you. So I know that there are those people out there, but the vast majority of the people who listen to this podcast might understand some of it, but maybe not other parts. And you just basically be listening to somebody talk gibberish if you can't actually see what they're doing. So what I did was, is I pulled a few select clips that I think do a good job of representing the overall presentation. And then at the end, they allowed questions. And I think that gives those the questions set up a, a little bit of context for you. And then Elon and the team answer those questions. And I think that's actually more valuable for the people in this audience, because it doesn't rely so heavily on me to fill in the blanks. Um, because this was a very visual presentation. So... Honestly, I really enjoyed it, and I'm going to have to go back and look through this presentation a few more times to really kind of grasp the everything that was going on. 
because it was dense. It was information dense. Elon was barely a part of this whole presentation. He took a very big back seat until the very end, which I think is good. It kind of let the team shine instead of Elon shining. Despite what many people think, and this is Tesla critics and Tesla fans, Elon doesn't do all of the work at Tesla. They have a team of 40 some thousand employees and then a bunch of companies that support Tesla to get this vision done. So I think it's really great that the, the team had their opportunity to be up there on the stage presenting and answering these questions. So good job, Tesla team. So the presentation started with Andre Karpathy, and he's head of the Tesla Vision team. And he was talking about what the car sees with Tesla Vision, and he draws comparisons to how they try to build that out in the back end. And really what they tried to do was recreate the biological visual cortex in seen in animals and in, in humans. So that's kind of the basis for Tesla Vision. So let's go ahead and listen to that video. So we're going to start off with the vision component here. Now, in the vision component, what we're trying to do is we're trying to design a neural network that processes the raw information, uh, which in our case is the eight cameras that are positioned around the vehicle. And they send us images, and we need to process that in real time into what we call the vector space. And this is a three-dimensional representation of everything you need for driving. So this is the three-dimensional positions of lines, edges, curbs, uh, traffic signs, traffic lights, uh, cars, their positions, orientations, depths, velocities, and so on. So here I'm showing the video of the raw inputs that come into the stack, and then neural network processes that into the vector space. And you are seeing parts of that vector space rendered in the instrument cluster on the car. So what we're looking at on the screen is basically how the car sees the environment around it. And what it does is it says, I think this is a car that labels it a car. I think this is a curb. It labels it a curb and it draws a little line. And it goes on and kind of builds this vector space, which is kind of like this, which will, it'll eventually be this 3D simulation that they'll talk about later in the presentation. And this vector space is every time, you know, one specific car or many cars travels down this path, it is adding to the data on the, and layering on and layering on to this vector space. And then it's looking at you know, this is a pedestrian. How is this pedestrian acting? Does it look like they're going to cross the road? That kind of thing. And there's a lot of predictions that that go on behind the scenes. And they talk about that a lot. And this is a very gross oversimplification of what they're actually presenting. But I want to make sure that you just kind of have that um, in your head as you listen to this and as the presentation goes on. All right. So let's go ahead and jump ahead to the part of the presentation where Andre is talking about that synthetic visual cortex versus the animal visual cortex and how they kind of built Tesla vision to match how we see the world and how animals see the world. What I find kind of fascinating about this is that we are effectively building a synthetic animal from the ground up. So the car can be thought of as an animal. It moves around, it senses the environment and, uh, you know, acts autonomously and intelligently. And, we are building all of the components from scratch in-house. So we are building, of course, all of the mechanical components of the body, the nervous system, which is all of the electrical components, and for our purposes, the brain of the autopilot, and specifically for this section, the synthetic visual cortex. Now, the biological visual cortex actually has quite intricate structure and a number of areas uh, that organize the information flow of this brain. And so in particular, in, our, in your visual cortices, um, 
the information hits the um, light, hits the retina, goes through the LGN all the way to the back of your visual cortex, goes through areas V1, V2, V4, the IT, the ventral and the dorsal streams, and the information is organized in a certain layout. And so when we are designing the visual cortex of the car, we also want to design the neural network architecture of how the information flows in the system. All right, we're going to go ahead for time's sake and skip the next presenter, but I'll just kind of run down what he was talking about. They spent a lot of time building up to this point. So basically, they were able to look at, have one data point when they first started with autopilot, and now they have multiple data points from different cameras, and it wasn't, it started with an image. Now they're taking these data points from multiple videos, and they're able to pull this into that visual cortex that they were talking about. And then again, it's all about predicting and labeling and then anticipating, which I guess is predicting what other vehicles are going to do inside of a simulation. So they have this, well, let me go back real quick. They had that vector space that we were talking about. And eventually that built a 3d world that looks very close to realistic. And this 3d world is actually, it's got people in it. It's got animals, cars, buildings, vegetation, emergency vehicles, curbs. It's got all of this stuff in this 3D simulation that looks very realistic, but isn't real at all. It looks amazing that you can tell if you glance at it, you're like, "Mm, I'm not sure. But then as you get closer, you're like, oh yeah, I can definitely tell that this is a, a simulation. So what they can do in this simulation is they can run tests. So obviously Tesla doesn't want you to go out and crash your car so they can find out if how the car should react the next time in a, in a, in a, in that similar situation. Right. So they can create, um, obstacles. They can create, uh, they could throw, like if a car looks like it's got its left blinker on and then it turns right, they can throw that at the, the, that's a very simplified example, but they could throw that at the, the simulation and then through that, um, they can see what the car is going to do. And they use a combination of correction by the engineers, but they also look and at data from actual drivers that were in similar situations. And what did they do? And they put that into the world. So if you think about it, the simulation is a video game and they talk about grand theft auto several times throughout the presentation. So the video game is the simulation and autopilot is the player and autopilot is just running these uh, scenarios over and over and over again, trying to come up with the best option for that given scenario. So it's, it's pretty cool. And like I said, not all this data is, is done inside of the simulation. A lot of it is done out in real real world. Uh, if Allison's listening, there you go. That's my, my rear, rear world, my rear real world. I'm leaving this in for Allison situations like this, these, these, these things happen. And this is how Tesla is training against it. So next we're going to get into the neural network training, which is all about dojo. And we've heard about dojo a ton over the last, uh, couple of years. So I'm excited to finally get to hear all about it. So let's listen to the clip. You know what, before we listen to the clip, I should probably let you know, this is a 19 minute clip. Now I could have cut it up and interrupted the presenter's flow, but ultimately I think it's important that you hear the whole clip and then I'll kind of give you a recap at the end because 
first of all, it's a lot of information. But second of all, I don't want you to lose the path of where this guy's taking you. Because I thought it was by far the easiest to understand part of the whole presentation. And it's still very nerdy. So go ahead and give it a listen. My name is Ganesh, and I lead Project Dojo. It's an honor to present this project on behalf of the multidisciplinary Tesla team that is working on this project. As you saw from Milan, there's an insatiable demand for speed as well as capacity for neural network training. And Elon prefetched this, and a few years back, he asked us to design a super fast training computer. And that's how we started Project Dojo. Our goal is to achieve best AI training performance and support all these larger, more complex models that Andre's team is uh, dreaming of and be power efficient and cost effective at the same time. So we thought about how to build this, and we came up with a distributed compute architecture. After all, all the training computers out there are distributed computers in one form or the other. They have compute elements in the box out here connected with some kind of network. In this case, it's a two-dimensional network, but it could be any different network. CPU, GPU, accelerators, all of them have compute, little memory, um, and network. But one thing which is common trend amongst this is it's easy to scale the compute. It's very difficult to scale up bandwidth and extremely difficult to reduce latencies. And you'll see how our design point catered to that, how our philosophy addressed these aspects of traditional limits. For Dojo, we envisioned a large compute plane filled with very robust compute elements backed with large pool of memory and interconnected with very high bandwidth and low latency fabric and in a 2D mesh format. And on to this, for extreme scale, big neural networks will be partitioned and mapped to extract different parallelism, model, graph, data parallelism. And then a neural compiler of ours will exploit spatial and temporal locality such that it can reduce communication footprint to local zones and reduce global communication. And if we do that, our bandwidth utilization can keep scaling with the plane of compute that we desire out here. We wanted to attack this all the way, top to bottom of the stack, and remove any bottlenecks at any of these levels. And let's start this journey in an inside-out fashion, starting with the chip. As I described, chips have compute elements. Our smallest entity of scale is called a training node. And the choice of this node is very important to ensure seamless scaling. If you go too small, it will run fast, but the overheads of synchronization will, and software will dominate. If you pick it too big, it will have complexities in implementation in the real hardware and ultimately run into memory bottleneck issues. Because we wanted to address, we wanted to address latency and bandwidth as our primary optimization point. Let's see how we went about doing this. What we did was we picked the farthest distance a signal could traverse in a very clock, very high clock cycle. In this case, two gigahertz plus. 
and we drew a box around it. This is the smallest latency that a signal can traverse, one cycle at a very high frequency. And then we filled up the box with wires to the brink. This is the highest bandwidth you can feed the box with. And then we added machine learning compute underneath, and then a large pool of SRAM. And last but not the least, a programmable core to control. And this gave us our high-performance training node. What this is, is a 64-bit superscalar CPU optimized around matrix multiply units and vector SIMD. It supports floating point 32, bfloat 16, and a new format, CFP8, configurable FP8. And it is backed by one and a quarter megabyte of fast ECC-protected SRAM and the low-latency, high-bandwidth fabric that we designed. This might be our smallest entity of scale, but it packs a big punch. More than one teraflop of compute in our smallest entity of scale. So let's look at the architecture of this. The computer architects out here may recognize this. This is a pretty capable architecture as soon as you see this. It is a superscalar in-order CPU with four-wide vector and two-wide two-wide, uh, four-wide scalar and two-wide vector pipes. We call it in order, although the vector and the scalar pipes can go out of order, but for the purists out there, we still call it in order. And it also has four-way multi-threading. This increases utilization because we can do compute and data transfers simultaneously. And our custom ISA, which is the instruction set architecture, is fully optimized for machine learning workloads. It has features like transpose, gather, link traversals, broadcast, just to name a few. And even in the physical realm, we made it extremely modular, such that we could start abutting these training nodes in any direction and start forming the compute plane that we envisioned. When we click together 354 of these training nodes, we get our compute array. It's capable of delivering 362 teraflops of machine learning compute. And of course, the high bandwidth fabric that interconnects these. And around this compute array, we surrounded it with high-speed, low-power services, 576 of them to enable us to have extreme I.O. bandwidth coming out of this chip. Just to give you a comparison point, this is more than two times the bandwidth coming out of the state-of-the-art networking switch chips which are out there today. And network switch chips are supposed to be the gold standards for I.O. bandwidth. If we put all of it together, we get training-optimized chip our D1 chip. This chip is manufactured in 7 nanometer technology. It packs 50 billion transistors in a miserly 645 millimeter square. One thing you'll notice, 100% of the area out here is going towards machine learning training and bandwidth. There is no dark silicon. There is no legacy support. This is a pure machine learning machine. <clears throat> and... This is the D1 chip in a flip chip BGA package. This was entirely designed by Tesla team internally, all the way from the architecture 
to GDS out and package. This chip is like a GPU-level compute with a CPU-level flexibility and twice the network chip-level I.O. bandwidth. If I were to plot the I.O. bandwidth on the vertical scale versus teraflops of compute that is available in the state-of-the-art machine learning chips are there, uh, including some of the startups, you can easily see why our design point excels beyond par. Now that we had this fundamental physical building block, how to design the system around it? Let's see. Since D1 chips can seamlessly connect without any glue to each other, we just started putting them together. We just put five hundred thousand training nodes together to form our compute plane. This is thousand five hundred D1 chips seamlessly connected to each other. And then we add Dojo interface process processors on each end. This is the host bridge to typical hosts in the data centers. It's connected with PCI Gen 4 on one side with a high bandwidth fabric to our compute plane. The interface processors provide not only the host bridge, but high bandwidth DRAM shared memory for the compute plane. In addition, the interface processors can also allow us to have a higher radix network connection. In order to achieve this compute plane, we had to come up with a new way of integrating these chips together. And this is what we call as a training tile. This is the unit of scale for our system. This is a groundbreaking integration of 25 known good D1 dice onto a fan-out wafer process, tightly integrated such that it preserves the bandwidth between them. The maximum bandwidth is preserved there. And in addition, we generated a connector, a high-bandwidth, high-density connector that preserves the bandwidth coming out of this training tile. And this tile gives us nine petaflops of compute with a massive I.O. bandwidth coming out of it. This, perhaps, is the biggest organic MCM in the chip industry, multi-chip module. It was not easy to design this. There were no tools that existed. All the tools were croaking. Even our compute cluster couldn't handle it. We had to, our engineers, came up with different ways of solving this. They created new methods to make this a reality. Now that we had our compute plane tile with high bandwidth IOs, we had to feed it with power. And here, we came up with a new way of feeding power vertically. We created a custom voltage regulator module that could be reflowed directly, directly onto this fan-out wafer. So what did we did out here is we got chip, package, and we brought PCB-level technology of reflow onto this fan-out wafer technology. This is a lot of integration already out here. But we didn't stop here. We integrated 
the entire electrical, thermal, and mechanical pieces out here to form our training tile fully integrated, interfacing with a 52-volt DC input. It's unprecedented. This is an amazing piece of engineering. Our compute plane is completely orthogonal to power supply and cooling. That makes high bandwidth compute planes possible. What it is, is a nine petaflop training tile. This becomes our unit of scale for our system. And this is real. I can't believe I'm holding nine petaflops out here. <laughs> and in fact, last week we got our first functional training tile. And on a limited, limited cooling benchtop setup, we got some networks running. And I was told Andre doesn't believe that we could run networks till we could run one of his creations. Andre, this is MinGPT2 running on Dojo. <laughs> Do you believe it? <laughs> Next up, how to form a compute cluster out of it. By now, you must have realized our modularity story is pretty strong. We just put together some tiles. We just tile together tiles. <laughs> a two by three tile in a tray makes our training matrix, and two trays in a cabinet give 100 petaflops of compute. Did we stop here? No. <laughs> we just integrated seamlessly we broke the cabinet walls. We integrated these tiles seamlessly all the way through, preserving the bandwidth. There's no bandwidth divot out here. There's no bandwidth cliffs. All the tiles are seamlessly connected with the same bandwidth. And with this, we have an exapod. This is one exaflop of compute in 10 cabinets. It's more than a million training nodes that you saw. We paid meticulous attention to that training node, and there are one million nodes out here with uniform bandwidth. Not just the hardware. The software aspects are so important to ensure scaling. And not every job requires a huge cluster. So we planned for it right from the get-go. Our compute plane can be subdivided, can be partitioned into units called dojo processing unit. A DPU consists of one or more uh, D1 chips. Uh, it also has our interface processor and one or more hosts. 
And this can be scaled up or down as per the needs of any algorithm, any network running on it. What does the user have to do? They have to change their scripts minimally. And this is because of our strong compiler suite. It takes care of fine-grained parallelism and mapping the pro problems of mapping the neural networks very efficiently onto our compute plane. Our compiler is, uses multiple techniques to extract parallelism. It can transform the networks to achieve not only fine-grained parallelism using data model graph parallelism techniques, it also can do optimizations to reduce memory footprints. One thing, because of our high bandwidth nature of the fabric is enabled out here, is model parallelism could not have been extended to the same level as what we can. It was limited to chip boundaries. Now we can, because of our high bandwidth, we can extend it to training tiles and beyond. Thus, large networks can be efficiently mapped here at low batch sizes and extract utilization and new levels of performance. In addition, our compiler is capable of handling high-level dynamic control flows like loops, if-then-else, etc. And our compiler engine is just part of our entire software suite. The stack consists of an extension to PyTorch that ensures the same user-level interfaces that ML scientists are used to. And our compiler generates code on the fly such that it could be reused for subsequent execution. It has a LLVM backend that generates the binary for the hardware. And this ensures we can create optimized code for the hardware without relying on even single line of handwritten kernel. Our driver stack takes care of the multi-host, multi-partitioning that you saw a few slides back. And then we also have profilers and debuggers in our software stack. So with all this, we integrated in a vertical fashion. We broke the traditional barriers to scaling. And that's how we got modularity up and down the stack to add to new levels of performance. To sum it all, this is what it will be. It will be a fastest AI training computer, 4x the performance at the same cost, 1.3x better performance per watt, that is energy saving, and 5x smaller footprint. This will be Dojo Computer. And we are not done. We are assembling our first cabinets pretty soon. And we have a whole next generation plan already. We are thinking about 10x more with different aspects that we can do, all the way from silicon to the system again. We will have this journey again. We are recruiting heavily for all of these areas. Thank you very much. All right, let's talk about this. Pretty impressive. First of all, the D1 chip sounds amazing. Um, 
this goes to show you when you build chips for a very specific purpose versus buying off the shelf, you get much better performance. Like you see this with Apple's M1 chip, for example. This is no different than in what Tesla's doing, except for, you know, they're not going to hit really that um, those economies of scale because they're not mass market chips. They're for whatever Tesla's doing. So I wonder who they're going through for their fab on their chips. But anyway, they have 500,000 D1 chips, nine petaflops of compute power just on one training tile. Now, if you don't, if you, if you weren't quite sure at, at some point, it sounded like he picked something up. That was the training tile. And this thing was about, he's not a big guy, but it was about as big as his upper torso. And it looked very heavy. I don't know exactly how heavy these things are, but it looked very heavy. And if you are going to go back and watch the presentation, but you don't, you don't really want to watch the whole thing. This is definitely a piece that you want to check out because it was, I found it intriguing. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So next up, we're going to talk about TeslaBot. And at this point, it's been all over the news, so it shouldn't be much of a spoiler to you. But just in case you haven't heard, TeslaBot is this humanoid-looking robot that Tesla intends on building. Building Right now, they had a really cool video of a drawing, and then they had a mannequin that looked really cool. It looked like a humanoid, and then it's got kind of a digital readout face. Um, so it's not exactly... Uh, it doesn't have all, all, all the human characteristics that you would think. In typical Elon and Tesla fashion, they had somebody <laughs> dressed up in a Tesla AI bot cosplay, which was very poorly done. It looks like a modified fencing suit, to be honest. And they walked up the stairs like they were a robot, and then they just started dancing. It was silly. Um, well, it was it was silly. At first, I was like, what are they doing here? And then I was like, oh, okay, this is a joke. Clearly, this is a joke. 
So let's go ahead and listen to Elon talk about Tesla Bot. Now, unlike Dojo, unlike Dojo obviously that was not real. <laughs> uh, so Dojo is real. Uh, the Tesla Bot will be real. Um, but uh, basically, if you think about what we're doing right now with the cars, uh, Tesla is arguably the world's biggest robotics company because our cars are like se semi-sentient robots on wheels. Um, and with uh, uh, the full self-driving computer, essentially the, the inference engine on the car, which will keep evolving, obviously, and uh, Dojo, uh, and all the uh, neural nets recognizing the world, understanding how to navigate through the world, uh, it, it kind of makes sense to put that onto a humanoid form. Um, and we're also quite good at uh, sensors and batteries and uh, actuators. So uh, we think we'll probably have uh, a prototype sometime next year uh, that uh, is, basically looks like this. Um, and it's intended to um, uh, be friendly, of course. Um, <laughs> and uh, navigate through a world uh, built for humans and uh, eliminate dangerous, repetitive, and boring tasks. Um, we're setting it such that it is, um, at a mechanical level, at a physical level, uh, you can run away from it. Um, <laughs> and, and most likely overpower it. <laughs> so uh, hopefully that doesn't ever happen, but um, you never know. So it's a, it'll be a, you know, a light, a, a light, yeah, anyway, five miles an hour. You can, if you can get run past on that, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, it's a, around uh, five foot eight, um, uh, has sort of a, a screen where the head is for useful information, um, but it's otherwise basically got the autopilot system in it, so it's uh, got cameras got eight cameras, and um, yeah, uh, full self driving computer, and making use of all of the same tools that we use in the car. So, um, I mean, things that I think that are really hard about uh, having a useful humanoid robot is, can it navigate through the world without being explicitly trained? Uh, I mean, without explicit, like, line-by-line uh, -line instructions. Um, can you can you talk to it and say you know please uh, pick up that bolt uh, and uh, attach it to the car with that wrench and it should be able to do that. Um, it should be able to you know please you know please go to the store and get me the following groceries, um, that kind of thing. So yeah, I think we can do that. Um, <laughs> and. Yeah, this I think will be quite quite profound because if you say it like, what is the economy? It is uh, at the foundation. It is labor. So, what happens when there is, uh, you know, no shortage of, of labor? Um, this is why I think long term that there will need to be universal basic income. Um, yeah, but but not right now because this robot doesn't work. Uh, so. <laughs> we just didn't need a minute. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I think it's, it's essentially in the future, uh, physical work will be a choice. If you, if you want to do it, you can, but you won't need to do it. And, um, yeah, I think it obviously has profound implications for the economy because 
uh, given that the economy at, at its foundational level uh, is labor, I mean, capital is uh, capital equipment is just distilled labor, uh, then um, is there any actual limit to the economy? Uh, maybe not. Um, so, yeah. Join our team and help build this. All right, so I think we'll, we'll have everyone come back on the stage and you guys can ask questions if you'd like. All right, before we get to questions, um, I'm not sure why you would announce something you haven't prototyped yet other than it, it gets, I mean, I guess it's kind of associated with AI, but really it, I think it's more to draw up some buzz because it was for the lay person, this was a very dry presentation. There's not a lot of fancy things that the news is going to catch hold of here. And obviously the news is catch caught hold of the AI bot because they have talked about that way more than they've talked about anything else. And I think the most impressive thing is Dojo, obviously. But here I'm just going to give a quick rundown again of the specs and benefits of AI bot. It's built for humans. It's used or its goal is to eliminate boring, repetitive or dangerous tasks. It's going to be 5'8", 125 pounds. You're, most people will be able to outrun it, probably not me, at 5 miles per hour. And that I run all the time. Actually, I can run faster than 5 miles per hour. But I'm a very slow runner. Um, the carrying capacity will be 45 pounds. It'll deadlift 150 pounds, and its arm lift will be 10 pounds. So I'm guessing it's not that it can't lift or carry more. If the deadlift's 150 pounds, it's that it'll just fall over if it tries to pick up something that's that's a heavier than those weights. Um, but I think the biggest thing here, and you know, Elon's fear of AI taking over the world, the biggest benefit is be friendly. Uh, I do want to talk about something that Elon just kind of glanced over, but he said that this robot could go to the store store for you and get groceries. So are we going to see a Tesla pay like Apple pay or Google pay? Or is there going to be a Tesla pay? Interesting, right? Um, another thing is uh, robots are very unlikely to unionize. They work cheap. They don't need benefits or workman's comp. Um, I don't think that the robot, uh, we've been doing automation for a really long time. I don't think that we're necessarily going to put people out of jobs. I do think that people are going to need to retrain for sure. And maybe, you know, if you have a very, very specific job and you don't have the ability to uh, do anything else in your life, except for this one specific job, like George Jetson, putting the start, pushing the start button at the factory. If you can't do anything but that, then of course you're probably going to lose your job. But if you can be trained, I think you're going to be okay. Now let's talk about this thing as a device. If it comes out or as a product, if it comes out around $30,000 and it'll clean my house, do laundry, if it's able to actually navigate stairs and then make or prep dinner, I'm 100% in on this thing. And I think this would be honestly an easy sell for my wife. Um, but for us, that would be more of a convenience, right? But there are people who are in wheelchairs. There are people who may be blind or deaf or just elderly. I mean, there's a ton of different specific issues that you could have that this thing could make your life better. And we already know in Japan, they had those little robot dogs and older people there kept those dogs for companionship because they were lonely. Um, I think that this could turn into something like that. 
Um, and there was a little joke about companionship of a different kind later on in the questions. And I'm pretty sure I left that in, but I mean, genuinely, I think like Rosie, the robot going back to the Jetsons, she was part of the family. I don't see why, uh, people wouldn't assign some sort of affection to an AI bot that's basically going around and cleaning your house and grabbing your groceries and stuff like that. So um, it's just kind of how we are as, as humans. And if you are a person that wouldn't do that, uh, if you wouldn't, uh, if you don't have affection towards other humans, and obviously you're not going to have affection towards a robot, but I find myself apologizing to Siri an awful lot and my Siri is just a dude in my phone. So, you know, I, I, I would imagine that if this thing's walking around and roughly your height and looks familiar or looks similar to what you look like, albeit probably a whole lot skinnier, you would probably start assigning it feelings, even if it didn't have any. All right, let's go ahead and get to the questions. For this question segment, I'm pretty much just going to let the, the questions roll. There's one part where I'm going to really uh, kind of break in and and just kind of give a comment, but pretty much it's going to roll through the questions. So let's go ahead and get those started. And I didn't give you every single question. I, I pruned down to only the best questions or what I thought would be the most interesting questions for you. I can just, okay, there we go. Uh, first off, I mean, thanks to all the presenters. That was just super cool to see everything. Um, I'm just curious at a high level, and this is kind of a question for really anyone who wants to take it. Um, to what extent are you interested in publishing or open sourcing anything that you do for the future? Um, well, I mean, it is fundamentally extremely expensive to create uh, the system. So uh, somehow that has to be paid for. I'm not sure how to pay for it if it's fully open sourced. Um, yeah, unless people want to work for free. But, but I should say that... Uh, this is if other car companies want to license it and use it in their cars, that would be cool. This is not intended to be just limited to Tesla cars. It's for the Dojo supercomputer. So, did you solve the compiler problem of scaling to these many nodes, or is or if it is solved, is it only applicable to Dojo? Because uh, I'm doing research in um, deep learning accelerators and getting the correct scalability uh, or the distribution, even in one chip, is extremely difficult from the uh, research project's perspective. So I was just curious. Excuse me. Mike for Bill? You want to? Uh. Have we solved the problem? No, not yet. Are we confident we will solve the problem? Yes. We have a demonstrated networks on prototype hardware now. We have models, performance models showing the scaling. The difficulty is, as you said, how do we keep the localities? If we can do enough model parallel, enough data parallel to keep most of the things local, we just keep scaling. We have to fit the parameters in our working set in our SRAM that we have, and we flow through the pipe. There's plenty of opportunities. Sorry, as we get further scale for further processor nodes, have more local memory, memory trade-offs with bandwidth, we can do more things. But as we see it now, the applications that Tesla has, we see a clear path. And our, our modularity story means we can have different ratios, different aspects created out of it. I mean, this is something that we chose for our applications internally. 
Uh, sure. Uh, I was just saying that the locality portion of it, given that training is such a soft scaling application, uh, even though you have all this compute and have a high bandwidth, um, high bandwidth interconnect, uh, it, it could not uh, give you that performance because you're doing computations on limited memory at different locations. So I was, uh, that, that's very curious to me when you said it's solved because I, I just jumped onto the opportunity and would love to know more uh, given that how much you can open source. Yeah. Yeah, I guess the proof's in the pudding. Um, so we, we should have Dojo operational next year. Um, and um, I think we'll, we'll obviously use it for uh, training, video training. It's, I mean, fundamentally this is about like um, the, the, the primary application initially is uh, we've got vast amounts of video and how do we train vast amounts of video uh, uh, as efficiently as possible. Um, and um, uh, also shorten the amount of time. Like if, if you're trying to train, train to a task, um, like just in general, innovation is um, how many iterations and what is the average progress between each iteration. And so if, if you can reduce the time between iterations, uh, the rate of improvement uh, is, is much better. So um, you know, if it takes like sometimes a couple of days for a model to train versus a couple hours, that's, that's a big deal. Um, but the, the, the asset test here, and, and um, you know, what I've told, told the Dojo team is like it's it's, it's successful if the uh, software team wants to turn off the GPU cluster, but if they want to keep the GPU, GPU cluster on, <laughs> it's not successful. <laughs> so. Yeah. Uh, hi, uh, right over here. Uh, love the presentation. Thank you for getting us out here. Love the everything, especially the simulation part of the presentation. I was wondering, um, it looks very, 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 uh, very uh, realistic. Are there any plans to maybe expand simulation to other parts of the company in any way? Hi, I'm Ian Glow. Uh, I manage the autopilot simulation team. So as we go down the path to full self-driving, we're going to have to simulate more and more of the vehicle. Um, currently, we're simulating vehicle dynamics, but we're going to need BMS, we're going to need the MCU, we're going to need every single part of the vehicle integrated. And that actually makes the autopilot simulator really useful for places outside of autopilot. So I want to expand, or we want to expand eventually to being a universal simulation platform. But I think before that, we're going to be spinning up a lot of Optimus support. And then a little bit further down the line, we have some rough ideas on potentially how to get uh, the simulation infrastructure and some of the cool things we've built into the hands of people outside of the company. Optimus is the code name for the Tesla bot. Oops. <laughs> Optimus subprime. Hi, uh, thank you for all the great work that you've shown. Uh, my question is for the team, uh, because the data that was shown was seems to be predominantly from the United States that the, the FSD computer is being trained on. But as it is being, as it gets rolled out to different countries, which have their own road systems and you know, challenges that come with it, how do you think that it's going to scale? Like, like I'm assuming like ground up is not a very viable solution. So how does it transfer to different countries? Uh, well, there's, we, we actually do train on using data from I don't know, probably like 50 different countries, um, but we have to pick, uh, you know, in, in, as we're trying to advance full self-driving, we need to pick one country, and since we're located here, we pick the U.S., um, 
And uh, there were a lot of questions like, why not even Canada? I'm like, well, because the roads are a little different in Canada, different enough. Um, and so when you're trying to solve a hard problem, uh, you want to uh, say, like, okay, what's the... Let's not add additional complexity right now. Uh, let's just solve it for the U.S., and then we'll extrapolate to the rest of the world. But we do use video from all around the world. Yeah. I think a lot of, a lot of what we are building is very country agnostic. Fundamentally, all the computer vision components and so on don't care too much about country-specific uh, sort of features. Every, you know, different countries have roads, and they have curbs, and they have cars, and everything we're building is fairly general for that. Yeah, and, and then the, the prime directive is don't crash. Right, and that's uh, true for every country. Yes, <laughs> this is the prime directive. <laughs> um, and um, I mean, even right now, the car is pretty good at not crashing. Um, and so just basically, um, whatever it is, don't hit it. Even if it's a UFO that crash-landed uh, on, the, on the highway, and uh, still don't hit it. You <laughs> um, should not need to recognize it in order to not hit it. Um, so that's very important. Uh, thanks, everybody. My question has to do with sort of AI and manufacturing. It's been a while since we've heard about the alien dreadnought concept. Is the humanoid that's behind you guys, is that kind of brought out of the production hell timeline and saying that humans are underrated in that process? Um, well, sometimes like some, you know, something that I say is uh, taken to too much of an extreme. Um, there, <laughs> um, there are parts of the Tesla system that are, are almost completely automated. And then there are some parts that are almost completely manual. Um, and uh, if you were to walk through the whole production system, you would see a very wide range from, yeah, like I said, f fully automatic to almost completely manual. Uh, but the vast majority, it's, it's, most of it is, is, is already uh, automated. Um, so, and then with the, some of the design architecture changes, like going to large uh, aluminum high-pressure die-cast components, we, we can take the entire rear third of the car and cast it as a single piece. And now we're going to do the, the front third of the car as a single piece. So the, the body line uh, drops by like 60 to 70% in size. Um, but yeah, the, the, the robot is not, is not prompted by specifically by manufacturing needs. It's, it's just that um, we're just obviously making the pieces that are needed for a useful humanoid robot. Um, so I guess we probably should make it. And if we don't, someone else would, will. And so I guess we should make it and make sure it's safe. I should say, like, also manufacturing, volume manufacturing is extremely difficult um, and underrated. And we've gotten pretty good at that. It's also important for that humanoid robot. Like, how do you make the humanoid robot not be super expensive? And you know. Power consumption in data centers and all kinds of other internal processes. My question is, are, is Tesla using machine learning within its manufacturing design or other engineering <laughs> processes? Um, I, 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 <laughs> I discourage use of machine learning. <laughs> Because it's really difficult, unless you basically unless you have to use machine learning, don't do it. <laughs> um, it's usually a red flag when somebody says we want to use machine learning to solve this task. I'm like, that sounds like bullshit. Um, so, uh, 
99.9% of the time you do not need it. Um, so, yeah, but so it's, it's kind of like a, you, you know, reach for machine learning when you, when you need to, not, but it's, I've not found it to be a convenient, easy thing to do. Um, it's a super hard thing to do. Now, that may change if you've got a humanoid robot that can, you know, understand normal instructions. Um, but, uh, yeah, generally minimize use of machine learning in the uh, factory. Hi. Um, based on your videos from the simulator, uh, it looked like a combination of graphical and neural approaches. I'm curious what the set of underlying techniques uh, that are used for your simulator and specifically for neural rendering, if you can share. Yeah, so we're doing, uh, at the bottom of the stack, it's just traditional game techniques, uh, just rasterization, real time, uh, you know, very similar to what you'd seen like GTA. Um, on top of that, we're doing real time ray tracing. And then those results were really hot off the press. Um, I mean, we had that little asterisk at the bottom that that was from last night. Uh, we're going into the neural rendering space. We're trying out a bunch of different things. Uh, we want to get to the point where the neural rendering is the, the cherry on the top that pushes it to the point where the models will never be able to overfit on our simulator. Um, currently, we're, we're doing things similar to photorealism enhancement. Uh, there's a paper, a recent paper, photo, enhancing photorealism enhancement. Um, but we can do a lot more than the, what they could do in that paper because we have way more labeled data, way more compute, um, and also much we have a lot more control over our environments. Um, and we also have a lot of people who can help us make this run at real time. Um, but we're going to try whatever we can do to get to the point where we can train everything just with the simulator uh, if we had to. But we will never have to because we have so much real world data that no one else has. Um, it's just to fill in the little gaps in the real world. Yeah, I mean, as we, the simulator is, is, is very helpful when there's like the, these rare cases like, like um, you know, like collision avoidance right before an accident. Um, and then, the, ironically, the, the better our cars become at avoiding accidents, the fewer accidents there are, so then our training set is small, so then we have to make them crash in the simulation. <laughs> so it's like, okay, mi minimize potential injury to uh, pedestrians and, and people in the car. You, uh, you have five meters, you're traveling at, uh, you know, 20 meters per second. Um, what actions would minimize prob probability of injury? Uh, we can run that in some. <laughs> so. like cars driving down the wrong side of the highway, that kind of thing. Happens occasionally, but not that often. Hi. Um, so, quick question about um, your simulations. Um, obviously, they're not perfect right now. So are you using any sort of domain adaptation techniques to basically bridge the gap between your simulated data and your actual real-world data? Because I imagine it's kind of dangerous to just deploy models which are solely trained on simulated data. So maybe some sort of explicit domain adaptation or something. Is that going on anywhere in your pipeline? So currently... Uh I mean, we're producing the videos straight out of the simulator, uh, the, the full clips with kinematics and everything, and then we're just immediately training on them, but it's not the entire data set. It's just a small targeted segment, and we only are evaluating based on real-world video. Um, we're paying a lot of attention to make sure we don't overfit, uh, and if we have to start doing fancier things, we will, but currently it's 
we're not having an issue with it overfitting on the simulator. We will as we scale up the data, um, and that's what we're hoping to use uh, neural rendering to bridge that gap, to push that even further out. Um, we've already done things where we're using, like, the same network as in the car, but retrain it to detect sim versus real to drive our art decisions, um, and that's actually helped um, prevent some of these things as well. Yeah, just to emphasize that overwhelmingly the data set is the real video from the cars on the actual roads. Uh, nothing's weirder or, uh, or has more corner cases than reality. Um, it gets really strange out there. Um, but, uh, but then if, if we find, say, a few examples of something very odd, um, uh, and there's some very, some, some very odd pictures we've seen, um, then in order to train it effectively, we, we want to um, create simulations uh, Say a thousand simulations that are that are variants of that quirky thing that we saw, the foot to fill in the, some important gaps and, and make the system better. And really, all, all of this is about over time just um, reducing the probability of of a crash or an injury, um, and uh, just the, the march of nines. Like, how do you get to nine nine point nine 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 percent safe? You know, and it yeah. Each nine is an order of magnitude difficulty increase. Hey, uh, thanks so much for uh, the presentation. I was curious about the Tesla bot. Um, specifically, I'm wondering if there are any specific applications that you think the humanoid form factor lends itself to. And then secondary, um, because of its human form factor, is emotion or companionship at all thought about on the product roadmap at all? <laughs> um, well, we, we certainly hope this does not feature in a dystopian sci-fi movie. Uh, but, uh, you know, like, really, at this point, we're, we're saying, like, maybe this robot can it just, we're, try, I'm, we're trying to be as literal as possible. Can it do um, boring, dangerous, repetitive uh, jobs that people don't want to do? And uh, you know, once we can have it do that, then maybe we can do other things too. But that's the that's the thing that would be really great to have. So it could be your buddy too. I mean, if I want to have it be your your friend and whatever. <laughs> I'm sure that people will think of some very creative uses. <laughs> Um, so, firstly, thanks for the, the really incredible presentation. Um, my question is on the AI side. Um, so one thing we've been seeing is that with some of these language modeling AIs, we've seen that scaling has just had incredible impacts in their capabilities and what they're able to do. Um, so I was wondering whether you're seeing similar kinds of effects of scaling in, in your uh, neural networks and your applications. Absolutely. A bigger network, typically we see it performs better, provided you have the data to also train it with. And this is also what we see for ourselves. Uh, definitely in the car, we have some latency consideration to be mindful of. And so there we have to get creative to actually deploy much, much larger networks. But as we mentioned, we don't only train neural networks for what goes in the car. We have these um, auto-labeling pipelines that can utilize models of arbitrary size. So in fact, we've trained a number of models that are not deployable, that are significantly larger and work much better because we want, like, we want much higher accuracy for the auto-labeling. And so we've done a lot of that, and there we definitely see this trend. Yeah, the, the auto-labeling is uh, an extremely important part of this whole, whole situation. Um, without the auto-labeling, I think we would not be able to solve the self-driving right. problem. Yeah. 
it's kind of a funny form of distillation where you're using these very massive models plus the structure of the problem to do this reconstruction, and then you distill that into neural networks that you deploy to the car. But we basically have a lot of neural networks and a lot of tasks that are never intended to go into the car. Yeah, and also, as uh, time goes on, that you get new frames of information. So you really want to make sure your computer is distributed across all the information as opposed to just taking a single frame and hogging on it for, say, 200 milliseconds. You actually have newer frames coming in, so you want to like, use all of the information and not just use that one frame. I think one of the things we're seeing is that the car's predictive ability is, um, is quite is eerily good. Um, it's, it's really getting better than human in terms of predicting, like you say, like, what, predict what this road will look like uh, when it's out of sight, like it's around the bend, and it predicts the road with very high accuracy. Um, and, uh, you know, predict pedestrians or cyclists wherever behind, you know, where it just sees a little corner of the bicycle and a little bit through, through the windows of the bus. Uh, and it, it's, its ability to predict things is going to be much better than humans, like really way, way beyond. Right. Yeah, we see this often where we have something that is not visible, but the neural network is making up stuff that actually is very sensible. Sometimes it's eerily good, and you have to, like, you're wondering this is in the training set. Yeah. And actually, actually, in the limit, you can imagine the neural net has enough parameters to potentially remember Earth. So in the limit, it could actually give you the correct answer, and it's kind of like an HD map back, baked into the weights of the neural net. Yeah. I have a question about the design of the Tesla bot, specifically um, in order, uh, how is it important is it to maintain that humanoid form, um, to build hands with five fingers uh, that also respects the weight limits could be quite challenging. You might have to use cable driven and then that also causes all kinds of issues. Um, I, I mean, this is just going to be bot version one. I mean, we'll see. So the it, it's it needs to be able to do things that, that people do um, and uh, you know, be a generalized you know, humanoid robot. Um, I mean, you could, make, you could potentially have it give, give it like you know, two fingers and a thumb or something like that. Um, you know, for now, we'll, we'll, we'll give it five fingers and, and see, see if that works out okay. It probably will. It, it doesn't need to be like, uh, you know, have like inc incredible grip strength. Um, but it needs to be able to work with tools, so and you know carry a bag, that kind of thing. Hi, thanks a lot for the presentation. Um, so an old professor of mine told me that um, the thing he disliked a lot about his Tesla was that the autopilot UX didn't really inspire much confidence in the system, especially when like objects are spinning, classifications are flickering. I was wondering. Even if you have a good self-driving system, how are you working on convincing Tesla owners, other road users, or other road users, and just the general public that your system is safe and reliable? Well, I think that's that's the cars. A while back, cars used to spin. They don't they don't spin anymore. Not in the, if you've seen the FSD beta videos, they they're they're pretty solid, um, and they will be getting more solid. Yeah, as you add more and more data and train these multi-cam video networks, like these are pretty recent, actually, just like a few months old, uh, and it's still improving. It's not a done product, uh, and that we've, in our minds we can clearly see how this is just going to be like perfect, perfect vector space. Because why not? Uh, all the information is there in the videos. It should produce it given lots of data and good architectures, um, and this is just an intermediate point in that timeline. I mean, it's it's clearly headed to way better than a human, without question. Oh, 
Hi, here. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the short to medium term economics of the bot. I guess I understand the long term vision of replacing physical labor, but I also think repetitive, dangerous, and boring tasks tend to not be so highly compensated. And so I just don't see how to reproduce the, you know, start with a supercar and then break into like the lower end of the market. How do you do that for a robot humanoid? Well, I guess you'll just have to see. <laughs> Hello. Hi. Um, I was curious to know how the car AI prioritizes um, occupant safety versus pedestrian safety and what thought process goes into like deciding how to bake this into the AI. Well, I mean, we... The, the, th the thing to appreciate is that from the computer standpoint, everything is moving slowly. So, uh, thing, you know, to a human, uh, things are moving fast. To the computer, they are not moving fast. So I, I think this is, in reality, somewhat of a false dichotomy. Not that it will never happen, but it will be very rare. Um, you know, if you think it was like, you know, going the other direction, like rendering, you know, with full ray tracing, uh, neural net enhanced uh, graphics on something like cyberpunk or in any you know advanced video game you know doing 60 frames a second uh, perfectly rendered like how long would it take a person to even render one frame and without any mistakes can't be done i mean it would take like a month just to just render one one frame out of 60 in a second in a video game it's uh, computers are fast and humans are slow. I mean, for example, uh, on, on the rocket side, the, you, you cannot steer the rocket to orbit. Um, we actually hooked up a joystick to see if anyone could steer the rocket to orbit, but you need uh, to react at roughly six, seven hertz. Uh, people can't do it. Not even a, now that's pretty low, you know. We're, we're talking more like aiming for like 30 hertz type of thing. Hi. Um, with the, oh, over here, uh, with Hardware 3, there's been lots of speculation that with larger nets, it's hitting the limits of what it can provide. How much headroom has the extended compute modes provided, and at what point would Hardware 4 be required, if at all? Well, um, I'm confident that uh, Hardware 3 or the full-stop driving computer one uh, will be able to uh, achieve full-stop driving at a safety level much greater than a human, probably, I don't know, at least two or 300% better than a human. Um, then, obviously, there will be a future Hardware 4 or, or full-stop driving computer 2, um, which we'll probably introduce with the Cybertruck, um, so maybe in about a year or so. Uh, that is... Probably, well, they'll be about four times more capable, roughly. Um, but it, it, it's really just going to be, like, can we take it from, say, for argument's sake, 300% safer than a person to 1,000% safer? Um, you know, just like there are people on the road who, with, with varying driving abilities, um, but we still let people drive. You don't have to be the world's best driver to be on the road. Um, so, as we see. Um, so... Yeah. 
You guys want to say anything? All right. Um, so, are you worried at all, since you don't have any depth sensors on the car, that people might try like adversarial attacks, like printed out photos or something, to try to trick the RGB neural network? Yeah, like what? Pull some like Wiley Cody stuff, you know, like paint the tunnel on the on the wall. <laughs> it's like, oops. <laughs> um, we haven't really seen much of that. Um, I mean, for sure, like, like right now, if you, most likely, if you had like a, a t-shirt with a, a t-shirt with like a stop sign on it, which I actually have a t-shirt with a stop sign on it, and, and then you like flash the car, it, it, it will, it will stop. <laughs> I, I proved that. Um, but we can obviously, as we see these uh, adversarial attacks, then we can, we can train uh, the cars to, uh, you know, notice that, well, it's actually a person wearing a T-shirt with a stop sign on it, so it's probably not a real stop sign. You know. Hi. Uh, my question is about um, the prediction and the planning. I'm curious, uh, how do you incorporate uncertainty into your, uh, you know, planning algorithms? Do, do you just basically assume, you, you know, you mentioned that you run the... Um, the autopilot for all of the other cars on the road, do you assume that they're all going to follow those rules, or are you accounting for the possibility that, well, they might be bad drivers, for example? Yeah, we do uh, account for multimodal futures. It's not that we just choose one. We account for, okay, this person can actually do many things, uh, and uh, we use their actual uh, physics and kinematics to make sure that they're not doing a thing that would interfere with us before we act. Um, so if there's any uncertainty, we are conservative, and then we'll yield to them. Of course, there's a limit to this, because if you're too conservative, then it's probably not practical. So at some point, we have to assert, uh, and we, even then we make sure that the other person can yield to us and um, act sensibly. I should say, like, <clears throat> um, like w before we introduce something into the fleet, we will uh, run it in shadow mode, um, and, so, and, and we'll see what, what would this... Neural net, for example, ha have done in this particular situation, um, uh, because, and then effectively the drivers uh, are training it, training the net. So if the neural net would have uh, controlled and you know and say veered right, but the person actually went left, and it's like oh there was a difference. Why was there that difference? Yeah, and secondly, so we also all the human drivers are essentially training the neural net uh, as to what is the correct course of action. Assuming it doesn't then end up in a, in a crash, you know, doesn't count in that case. Yeah, and secondly, we have various estimates of uncertainty, like flicker, uh, and when we uh, observe this, we actually uh, say if you're not able to see something, we actually slow down the car to be, uh, again, safe and get more information before acting. Uh, yeah, we don't want to be brazen and just go into something that we don't know about. We only go into places where we know about. Yeah. Um, yeah. It should be like, the, the, aspirationally, the, the car should be the less it knows, the slow you know, the, the slower it goes. Yeah. <laughs> this is not true at some point, but now it's... Yeah, 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 we've, yeah. Should be speed proportionate to confidence. Uh, thanks for the presentation. So I am curious, um, appreciate the fact that the FSD is improving, but if you have the ability to improve one component along the AI stack that presented today, whether it is simulation, data collections, planning and control, et cetera, 
Which one, in your opinion, is going to have the biggest impact for the performance of the full self-driving system? Hmm. It's really the area under the curve of these like multiple points, and if you improve anything, uh, it should improve the area. Yeah. I mean, the short, short term, it's arguably we, we need all of the nets to be um, surround video. Uh, and so we still have some legacy. This is very short term. Obviously, we're fixing it fast. But there's, there's, there's still some nets that are not using surround video. Um, and I, I, ideally, they'd all use surround video. Yeah. Very. Yeah. I think a lot of puzzle pieces out there for success. We just need more strong people to also just help us <laughs> yeah, make that, it work. Yeah. That is the actual bottleneck. So that is the yeah. actual bottleneck, I would say, and really one yeah. of the reasons that we are putting on this event. Exactly. Well, well said, uh, Andre. That um, th there's just a tremendous amount of work to do to make make it work. So that's why we need um, talented people to join and and uh, solve the problem. So as our models have become more and more capable, and I guess you're deploying these models into the real world, um, one thing I guess that's possible is for AI to become more, I guess, misaligned with what humans desire. So I guess, is that something that you guys are worried about as you guys deploy more and more robots? Um, or do you guys, like, we'll solve that problem when we get there? Yeah, I think that we should be worried about AI. Um, now, like, what we're trying to do here is, I'd say, narrow AI, uh, pretty narrow, like just make the car drive better than a human, um, and then have the humanoid robot be able to do ba basic stuff. Um, no, uh, you know, so um, at the point at which it, you sort of start to get to superhuman intelligence, uh, yeah, I don't know, all bets are off. Um, but, you know, and that, that's, 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 you know, That'll, that'll probably happen, but, but what, we're, what we're trying to do here at, at Tesla is make useful AI that people love and, and is uh, unequivocally good. That's our, you know, we'll try to aim for that. Okay, maybe one more, one more question. Hi, uh, my question is about the camera sensor. In the beginning of the talk, you had mentioned about building a synthetic animal. And if you think about it, a, a camera is a very poor approximation of a human eye, and a human eye does a lot more than take a sequence of frames. Have you looked into, like, there are, like, these days are, like, cameras, like, event cameras? Have you looked into them, or are you looking into a more flexible camera design or building your own camera, for example? Well, with Hardware 4, we will, we will have uh, a next-generation camera. Uh, but I have to say that the, the current camera is... We have, we have not reached the limit of the current cameras, uh, so, um, and I'm confident we can achieve full self-driving with much higher safety than, than, than humans uh, with the current cameras and current uh, compute hardware. Um, but, you know, it would be good to be 1,000% better rather than 300% better. Um, so um, so we'll, we'll see continued evolution on, on all levels uh, in pursuit of that goal. And I think in the future, uh, people will look back and say, um, wow, I can't believe we had to drive these cars ourselves. You know, it, it'll, like self-driving cars will just be <laughs> just a normal, like self-driving elevators. You know, uh, elevators used to have elevator operators. And uh, there's someone there with like, you know, a big, big relay switch uh, operating the elevator. And then every now and then they'd get tired or, you know, some, make a mistake and shear somebody in half. So, um, so now we, uh, you know, we made elevators automatic. And you just go and you press the button, 
and you can be in a 100-story skyscraper and don't really worry about it. Just go in, press a button, and uh, the elevator takes you where you want to go. Um, but it used to be that all elevators were operated manu manually. And it'll be the same thing like for cars. All, all cars will be automatic. Um, and then, um, and, and electric, obviously. Um, so there will still be some gasoline cars and some manual cars, just like there are still some horses. All right. It all comes back to the, <laughs> the elevator operator with Elon. I think I've heard that example no less than five times. And actually, I might have heard it at least ten times. It, it, I've heard it so much that I can almost repeat it. All right. Anyway, the part I was going to break in on, and then I just chose not to, was when they're talking about Elon mentioned wrong way drivers and how they're going to or how they can test against that. Because obviously you don't want to put somebody as a on a freeway, you know, wrong way driver. You can get somebody hurt in real life. This is something that happens. I don't know if it happens in other places. This is something that happens all too often in Arizona. Like it happens so much they barely even report on it in the news media anymore. It's ridiculous. So um, important, near and dear to my heart, for sure. All right, everybody. That is it for me. Thank you so much for listening. I know it was long, but hopefully you got something out of it. I know I did. It was a very interesting presentation, but like I said, just so hard to translate that, what they did there to this podcast. If you want to email me, you can at Bodie, B-O-D-I-E at 91Digital. You can follow me on Twitter at 918Digital. And yeah, that's it, folks. I hope you all have a wonderful week, and I will talk to you next Friday. Um, all right. Well, th thanks, everyone, for coming, and I uh, hope you enjoyed uh, the presentation, and thank you for the great questions. All right. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. 
It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.